I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories. I'm Jem Daduchu. And you know what I'm going to be condensing this time round? I'm going to be condensing 200 years of history into one short, yeah, slightly over half an hour podcast, okay? Pretty good going, I'm going to say. So what are we talking about this time round? Well, this time we're talking about something that actually Greg asked me to do two years ago. A number of people have said that would be really interesting if you could come on to our podcast and do it. And actually just never happened. So I can't wait to talk to you about Warhammer. Now, I'm going to say if you like this one, I could actually do a few of them because... In the modern world, there are two flavours of Warhammer. There's one set in a fantasy world, kind of think dragons and elves and orcs. And there's another one called Warhammer 40,000, which is set, I think you guessed it, basically in the 41st millennia with spaceships and space marines and aliens and laser guns and things like that. Now, that is a gross understatement as to what it is. But this time around, I'm starting with the first one. I'm starting with the fantasy one rather than the sci-fi one. But believe me, we could do a deep dive on both of them and do several episodes. So please, please, if you like these, give me some feedback. Now, as always, I'm not just going to talk about the thing. I'm going to talk about the historical background to the thing. So where is Warhammer going to take us? Well, I'm going to tell you, it's going to take us to a country that doesn't even exist anymore 200 years ago. It's going to guide us through a period of hysteria in the 1980s and it's going to also touch base on an icon in the video game industry in the 1990s. So come on, this is pretty good stuff, wouldn't you say? All for the sake of something called Warhammer. Right, let's get to it, shall we? So first of all, if you don't know what Warhammer is, in essence, it's a series of figures that you can also play games with. Again, I'm keeping this very simple for the uninitiated. If you know what I'm talking about, well, hey, bear with me. I'll tell you some interesting stuff that you don't know. So basically, imagine little plastic kits. They used to be metal, but nowadays the most kits are plastic. Think of an airfix kit and you'll glue together 
a little man, a soldier, something like that, a knight in shining armor or an orc with an evil axe or something. And they'll be about three centimeters tall. It's actually 28 millimeter scale, but that gives you an idea. So an average person would be that big, but then you might have a giant. Over Christmas, one of my boys got one of these giants for sale and for Christmas, and it was lovely. And that thing is more like 25 centimeters high. So you can see how that just towers over everything else on the on the table and it all looks very epic and big so what you do is you glue together these plastic figures you then paint them all by yourself I mean there are lots of online tutorials nowadays something that I didn't have as a kid and then you play games with them roll dice roll a five to hit something like that you you get the idea so there are if you like three slash four areas to the actual hobby. There's the building. Sometimes people convert, like smash two different kits together to make it look interesting and different. I quite like doing that myself. So there's the building, there's the painting, there's the playing. And the fourth one is there's lots of books and other things around it. So the lore, L-O-R-E, around it, okay? But where did this very elaborate series of games, the company itself behind it is called Games Workshop. They have a number of different brands. We'll come on to a few of those in a little bit. They're actually based in Nottingham. So this is a British company that's nowadays estimated to be worth, if they wanted to sell it, they'd probably sell for about a billion pounds. That's an awful lot of little plastic figures. Over the coronavirus period, their sales have gone up by 25% because, hey, if you don't want your kids to be staring at a screen, give them something else to do. Paint kit, few figures, off you go. And then maybe some simple rules as well. And so, yeah, more people have been buying this stuff. I know personally, because I've been allowed to go out and do other things, I've painted more than I would do normally myself. What has this got to do with a country that doesn't exist anymore? Well, the answer is we have to talk briefly, very briefly, because I obviously did a whole episode on chess. If you want to know more about that, look at the Queen's Gambit episode, where I tell you a little bit of history of the chess and how that turned into the sort of Cold War battle of wits that's created in Queen's Gambit, which is a real thing, although they used fictional characters. So chess has been around for a long time, and as I say in that podcast, basically it's a simple simulation of a battle, and it really doesn't work as an actual simulation of a battle. It's completely unrealistic. It's very stylized. So what happened? Well, in round about 1812, George Reiswitz in Prussia, that's a country that doesn't exist anymore. Prussia is largely northern Germany and bits of Poland as well. It's Obviously, you can see why that changed over an era. So Prussia, which was very much associated with militarism, perhaps the most famous Prussian of all was a guy called Frederick the Great. He was an ally to the British in what became known as the Seven Years' War. And he was quite the general. Indeed, when Napoleon conquered Prussia, he actually went to Frederick's tomb and actually paid his respects, even saying that had he been still alive in his time, he might have stopped him, which is high praise indeed from Napoleon. Prussia was, in the big scheme of like the major players in Europe, I mean, it was tiny compared to Russia, and it didn't have the history and the army of the French or the empire of the British. So it was a second stringing power in Europe, but it could basically punch above its weight because it did have a very good military system. And part of this is actually down to George Reiswitz because he created something, something had already been out there, but he basically enhanced it and he called it Kriegspiel. 
which is basically translated war games. And if you look at the concept that George came up with, it really is a very elaborate, very different to chess type scenario. For starters, boards could be changed. You might have like blue tiles on the board for rivers and there would be rules for river crossings and different types of troops had different effects. Artillery could fire from long range. Infantry much closer. If you had a line of infantry which had their bayonets fixed, that would be very effective against the cavalry. If they didn't and they weren't in formation, the cavalry would tear through them. It's quite a complex game, a very good simulator, and actually could be played over post. The idea being that you, you would have a board with the layout in your house and somebody in another city had the same board and you would exchange postal, like I'm now moving my my infantry to the top of the hill, that kind of stuff. And actually there were there's even a third party, a referee, just to make sure that there was a no cheating going on. And so what you've got here is an interesting simulation of war, very much showing you how some people have considered war as a game. This is literally a war game. And, and to this day, you get militaries practicing war in a simulated environment, which is referred to as war games. Indeed, I happen to know that Kriegspiel, a version of it, was still played in America, in basically their military academies, up to and including World War One, and it was called Kriegspiel until World War One, when they figured might want to change the name of that German thing because it doesn't really work when we're fighting Germany at the moment. But that shows you how much it spread. Now, George Reiswitz was the person who created it, but then it was enhanced by George Reiswitz, which is the name of the son of George Reiswitz, so we'll just call him Junior, in 1824. And the interesting thing is, as you can probably tell from these dates, is this is about the same time as Napoleon. Now, George Senior didn't fight in the Napoleonic Wars, but George Junior did, so he'd actually seen some of the greatest battles in history. He'd seen some of the greatest generals in military history, so he could add his own angle to it. And it was hugely popular. It wasn't that well known outside of Prussia until 1870. That's for two reasons. One, Prussia goes to war with France and we get the Franco-Prussian War, which between 1870 and 1871 leads to a crushing defeat of France. This unifies the various Germanic states and creates modern-day Germany. And also, at that time, Reiswitz Jr., who by now was quite an old man, he was actually going to places like Russia to spread his game, best practice. So a combination of Prussia showing, hey, we can, we can be a major power with less of everything, and also the guy saying, hey, well, you do know that our, our, basically our officer corps have been doing this for several generations, led to all kinds of countries picking up Kriegspiel. What's this got to do with Games Workshop and Warhammer and all this kind of stuff? Well, that's because in the 20th century, while absolutely military simulation was vital for officer classes around the world, people would obviously retire. And so we started getting war games. So literally people would paint little teeny tiny tin soldiers of let's say Wellington's army at Waterloo and there would be a rule book, a pamphlet going out for it. So there were basically all the historical eras were catered for by the post-war time, the 1950s onwards. So if, if you wanted to play a little bit of the Hundred Years War or a bit of the Roman Empire or the Napoleonic era, these are very different times in history, very different units being used, but this was quite popular. This is obviously at the time when 
TV really hadn't quite taken off yet. So what's this got to do with anything? Well, that's because this kind of simulation of war games and rolling of dice to work out whether you successfully carried out an attack or not got the attention of a man called Gary Gygax, and he created a completely new type of game. He called it a role-playing game and gave it a title to separate it very much from the the armor and the real swords and muskets of all these military recreations. And he called that Dungeons and Dragons. And he released that in 1974. So you can see that there's sort of like a DNA going all the way from Kriegspiel into Dungeons and Dragons. D&D, to make it simple. Again, could do an entire episode on D&D, but we just don't have time, okay? We're just gonna move past. But that was 1974. So what you get in 1975 is three Brits who start getting the attention that there seems to be something going on with board games and tabletop games and dice throwing games. And their names are John Peake, Steve Jackson, and Ian Livingstone. Now John Peake very quickly leaves this story because it's these three men who create Games Workshop in Britain in 1974. The reason why John leaves is because he's very much a traditional board game maker. I mean, literally, he would make wooden boxed versions of backgammon. And if you've ever seen a, a beautiful handcrafted, you, these, these can sometimes go for hundreds, if not thousands of pounds, you know, gold inlay and various different stained woods. They are a thing of beauty. But that is obviously something like backgammon is very traditional. And John didn't like that clearly the direction and indeed the money was going into this more fantastical stuff. Just wasn't his cup of tea he moved off, which left Steve Jackson and Ian Livingstone to run this company called Games Workshop. So far, so good. But it wasn't really making a lot of money. So in the same year, 75, they produce a hobby magazine. They call it Owl and Weasel, which I think we can all agree is a terrible name for a magazine. And I don't know how well Owl and Weasel sold. I bet it, there's a few copies of it on eBay. And because it's old, and it's the forerunner of a very famous hobby magazine, I bet they're probably worth quite a lot now. But that evolved into the marginally better named White Dwarf. Now, White Dwarf, not to be confused with Red Dwarf, White Dwarf is quite a good name because what it did was it pulled together all these sort of fantastical and sometimes science fiction games that were becoming more and more popular, things like Traveller, things like Dungeons and Dragons, so on and so forth. And a white dwarf could be a very old dwarf, as in like Lord of the Rings type dwarf, like short person uh, with a big white beard. But also a white dwarf is an astrological, astronomical, I should say, feature. So it played to both ways. And White Dwarf was launched in 1977 and as of 2021, is still in rude health. But if you are a current reader of White Dwarf, what it's become is basically anything that Games Workshop produces, they will show you something about it. Be it video games that they've licensed out, be it, well, I'll give you some of the other brand names that they've got, sort of tabletop games. They've got Necromunda, which is sort of like in a big 
a big industrialized city with basically gangs fighting each other, all set in the future. There's Blood Bowl. Imagine fantastical things like orcs, trolls, ogres fight, playing a game of very violent version of American football or rugby. They've obviously got Warhammer and Warhammer 40,000, and they've got Titanicus and Aeronautica, and these are all still set in the Warhammer 40,000 world, but Aeronautica is all to do with planes, and Titanicus is to do with giant robots shooting each other, you know, the size of city blocks. So all these different games are all in White Dwarf nowadays. Now, there are other companies out there, but they're never mentioned. White Dwarf's owned by Games Workshop. Why would they give anybody else any coverage? But back in the 1970s and indeed in the 1980s, they just weren't big enough. They had to cover these other games out there because that's what the hobby was about. Now, Games Workshop, in essence, has won the war. The two biggest brands are Dungeons & Dragons and Games Workshop. Dungeons & Dragons, however, because it's still largely pen and paper, they earn money from the books, but they also have this card game called Magic the Gathering, and that's really where the money goes for D&D. Warhammer, by contrast, well, those little plastic figures, a box of 10 of those is probably going to set you 30 quid back. And yeah, they're making a profit. I know they're making a profit. I have shares literally in Games Workshop and they're doing well, thank you very much. Games Workshop is is growing, but then what they do in 1979 is they create a new brand. So bear with me here. They've got Games Workshop, which is the actual overall company. They got White Dwarf, which is the name of their magazine. And then there's Citadel Miniatures. Now, Citadel Miniatures, I've just said little plastic kits used to be metal. Yeah, they used to create little teeny tiny metal fantasy figures. Orcs, wizards, skeletons, dragons, that kind of stuff. Something big like a dragon would come in multiple kit bits. And that kind of kit, when you're trying to put together the sort of white metal kits, I found almost impossible. I basically wanted the one piece orc charging, something like that. So what they did in 1979 is create Citadel miniatures because they realised that people playing Dungeons and Dragons would quite like a few little figures on the table. And a lot of this stuff had no intellectual property. Orcs were created by Tolkien in Lord of the Rings and nobody really thought to sort of copyright that kind of stuff. And what exact can you copyright necessarily an ugly humanoid with fangs? It's sort of weird. So, yes, and, and like a wizard with a hat on, that's not owned by anybody. A wizard is not an intellectual property right of anything in particular. However, if you called it Gandalf, then you'd probably get in trouble. So what Citadel did is they produced all these figures and then they came to the conclusion in 1983, well, we, we're making all these figures, but we don't own any of the intellectual property rights, so let's create our own game. And in 1983, they created their very first fant fantasy game called Warhammer. So Warhammer's been a, a constant brand out there. It, it evolved into something called Warhammer Fantasy because they also had Warhammer 40,000, which is the science fiction one. You had to separate the two. But in Warhammer fantasy, you could build the figures, paint the figures, and then they were producing all the rule books and things like that, and supplements as well. And this became very lucrative to them. So Steve Jackson and Ian Livingston were doing well out of this, but at the same time, roughly the same time of this, back in 1982, the two of them together released a brand new type of book. And I'm going to guess a lot of you out there have probably read slash played one of their books. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. They invented the fighting fantasy books. Now, if you're not sure what these are, and some of the names have become quite famous, the Warlock of Firetop Mountain, Death Trap Dungeon, Forest of Doom... Temple of Chaos, Tower of Chaos even. All these sort of names and so many more are basically adventures that you can read. Now, unlike reading something like The Hobbit, what happens is you start reading and it says, okay, you, and you come to a corridor. Do you turn left or do you turn right? If you want to turn left, turn to page 117. If you want to turn right, turn to page 52. And so you actually control the direction of where you're going in these books. You cannot read them cover to cover. They're gibberish. But if you follow the numbering system, you're in control of your own story. And you may well die in them. I mentioned Death Trap Dungeon. That was a notoriously hard book. And if you got through that, great, good for you. Personal favorite was City of Thieves. Anyway, the point is, it was such a huge hit fighting fantasy that Steve Jackson and Ian Livingston only wrote the first one together. There was such huge demand for these books that they decided, right, okay, Steve, you write one and Ian, I'll write the next one. And so they just started writing them independently, checking in on each other about, okay, what's your topics? We don't want to be duplicating anything. And you can actually go online and you, you can actually find people who've mapped out the books so you can work out which route is best. These are hugely popular. They've been reprinted multiple times. Quite literally, dozens of these books were written and millions of copies have been sold worldwide. So well done, Steve Jackson and Ian Livingston, on those amazing, innovative books, which are also overlaid on the Warhammer. But then Ian Livingston went one further. He 
eventually left Games Workshop. I presume he earned a fair bit of money out of Games Workshop. And then he set up a company, a video game company, because he reckoned perhaps the future might be with video games. And he created a company called IDOS Interactive. And he was on the creative team and he was the one who pushed the button on this little game called Tomb Raider. So yes, Ian Livingston is the creative behind Tomb Raider and Lara Croft, Games Workshop and Warhammer, and the Final Fantasy books. The remarkable genius of just entertainment. You know, he's not Leonardo da Vinci, I get that, but that's an awful lot of fun stuff to have created in your lifetime. And he's also very active on Twitter and I've, you know, I've actually interacted with him a little bit. He's a lovely, lovely guy. In fact, when I was a kid, I actually got a couple of my books signed by them. How do I know all this stuff? Well, because when I was a kid, I had a toy store near me. It took me a little while to walk there because it was at the kind of wrong end of town, or there was a parade of shops. So it was a good sort of 20 minute walk there and 20 minutes back. And downstairs was a traditional toy shop, had things in those days like Star Wars figures, and Transformers and stuff like that. But then if you went up the stairs, there was the brightly lit, it wasn't intimidating, but the slightly more mysterious place, which I now recognize, it was a hobby center. So it had things like airfix kits of like World War, World War II planes. It had Hornby model railway kits. And there was this area which just had these brightly decorated and painted boxes where you could see these goblins firing a cannon, sort of like falling off it. And the paintwork was so beautiful that I just instantly went, I, I have to buy one of those. And then I, I opened it up and I realized oh, that's not painted. So I'm gonna have to get some paints now. Now, back in the 80s, this was difficult to do. I didn't know how they did the paint job on the front cover. There was no such thing as YouTube tutorials, but uh, I, I just fell in love with them. And basically from about the age of 10 to about the age of 18, I pretty much spent all my pocket money and any money I earned on these games. So actually buying the rule books or these figures. And in my mother's words, it, went, it kept you out of trouble. You know, you weren't hanging around the local shopping mall trying to cause trouble your mates turned up you played games on the on the table kitchen table on every saturday and then everybody cleared off when we came back from work so oh, i had a great time and and some of the guys who i played with then i am we don't play anymore but i'm still friends with to this day more than 30 years later big shout out guys you know who you are so the point is it was fun but why did I stop when I was 18? Because I went to university. I liked comics, video games, and these sort of role-play-y tabletop figure stuff. That is not going to get you a girlfriend. So while I tucked all that stuff away, I did actually get a girlfriend at university, so I guess that plan worked. And then I forgot all about it. And then let's fast forward 30 years. I'm walking past, well, the modern stores there are, Sometimes they're still called Games Workshop. More often they're actually now called just Warhammer stores. And I walked past one and there was yeah, all the cool orcs fighting dragons or space marines firing their bolters and all this kind of stuff. These big, these cool figures, but also these cool posters. And I was walking along with my two boys and they went, what's that, daddy? And I went, I know exactly what that is. Should we go in and have a look? And cutting a long story short, that was four years ago. 
And I said to the boys, look, I'm happy to buy you a little bit, but this isn't toys. You're going to have to actually build it and look after it yourself. And about 24 hours before I recorded this very podcast, one of my boys just finished painting uh, a, a big old giant. And, and so, yeah, they're still playing it. And during lockdown, really important in terms of just sort of keeping their mental well-being going. It's been a really important thing for the family during these tough times. And of course, because three of us kind of know what we're doing, we're lucky enough, unlike other people who might be building and painting and waiting to play a game with somebody sometime, you know, we've got a shed that's taken over by Warhammer and it's got a table in there. So yeah, we can walk in there and we can actually play a game. In fact, with that very giant, as soon as he finished painting it, he wanted to give it a go and he absolutely annihilated me with it. 12 years old and trashed dad, completely annihilated him. However, the older one has been in literal tournaments for, for Warhammer and go to Nottingham, the place where they actually manufacture all these models and can actually see some of the ones that have been painted by the experts that are literally on the box art. And that's been, that was an amazing experience to go there because I'd never been there. And it's like, wow, they put a lot of effort into this place. That's basically what, what Warhammer is. And in essence, the game's changed quite a lot since I was a kid. Back in the day, if you've got a big, let's say, dragon, yeah, it's a big dragon. It's going to cause a lot of trouble for my enemy on the battlefield. Whereas nowadays, it isn't just how good is the figure. You've got to get all these extra rules as well. If you've got this guy over here and get him to use his spells on the guy over there, suddenly the guy over there was rubbish and now he's amazing and he's just killed my dragon. Now that is what my eldest is excellent at and I just don't have the patience and time to sort of work out this overlayering of rules and so on and so forth. So it is a hobby like fishing or like athletics. It takes up time. You can't just do it for five minutes and be good. However, the important thing is that when it comes to the painting, there are so many tutorials online and also the paints have got a lot better so that you can pretty quickly come up with some decent looking figures. Look, are they world class? No, but those people have been painting for 10 years and spend maybe three weeks on just one human. Whereas I, let's see, in the last week, these sort of rat men called Skaven, I painted 20 of them in a week. So there's no way I painted as much, put as much time into one of those that one of the pros did. But they're pretty good and on a tabletop if you're just looking at them standing over them they look all right so anyway the point is that warhammer is a fun game if, if this sounds interesting and actually the increase in sales does seem in part basically dads in lockdown going oh yeah i wonder if my kids would be interested in this and it turns out that they are and girls are getting into it and they've been very careful about trying to be more inclusive and there's an entire army in the fantasy well, in the fancy one, there's an entire bunch of very angry, evil elf ladies who will just tear you to pieces. And then in the Warhammer 40,000, in the science fiction one, there's literally the Sisters of Battle, an entire army of women. Plus, there are other women in, in it as well. But it, it's far more inclusive. I've noticed that with the paint jobs, not everybody's white like they used to be back in the 1980s. But if you like, this is part of the things. You, you've got to recognize that, uh, and this is where you go back to the hysteria that I mentioned. In the 1980s, there was this sort of furore around Dungeons and Dragons. Now, again, I'll perhaps do that for another time, but it meant that 
people were worried about this stuff. There was even accusations of devil worship. It, no such thing. You know, you're rolling dice and having a game. You're, you're the hero in your own story. There's no harm in that whatsoever. And what I find interesting is that the people who were the kids being shouted at by their parents and TVs in the 1980s are now the ones introducing their kids, knowing that there's no danger whatsoever. Indeed, I know a very Christian family who we actually played some Dungeons and Dragons together. And we all had a great time. The mum even joined in. It can be fun. Something like Dungeons and Dragons can actually be played during a pandemic. If, if you're on FaceTime or Zoom or whatever, because you don't necessarily need a board. You just need to be able to hear each other as the person describes what's going on and you roll the dice. You can't do that with Warhammer because you do literally like a game of chess. You do literally need to be at the same tabletop and you've got your armies and you need to know where everything's moving kind of thing. So yeah, that, that, that's what's going on there. So you can see that there is a surprising amount of history here. And this sort of quest for the simulation of battles goes back more than a millennia because it does share a little bit of DNA with chess. As I said, chess is an imperfect, but in a way, highly logical version of a battle, but it doesn't fairly reflect a battle. Whereas because there are so many dice in Warhammer, there have been instances not very many, where my eldest son, who knows the rules better than me, and has picked all the very best units, and sometimes has just sat, stood there, looked exactly at what I put on the table, and then deliberately picks all the stuff that will easily kill that other stuff. But hey, if you keep rolling ones, you're not going to hit anything. And so therefore, it there is this element of risk and, and luck to it. And there are times, there are some very powerful things, but if you roll, let's say, double one, it blows up and kills the thing that was going to cause all that damage in the first place. So it, you know, it can be gloriously fun. And one of the things I miss is in our local Warhammer store, every Friday night, there'd be a game of the fantasy one, which today is now called Age of Sigma. They decided to kind of retcon it and change it. So basically the old world that I grew up with, in essence, blew up. And then, uh, and then there's this new one which allows new armies to come out, but also to rewrite the rules and make it perhaps more accessible for younger people as well. When my youngest first started playing, he was eight, and he didn't really quite get it. He liked one army, he didn't really understand everything else, but he picked a really good army and he was also really lucky on his rolls, and he basically pounded his older brother in a battle which did not please his older brother. And anyway, the, the point is that I'm going to say eight is probably the very bare minimum. I think from age 10, you kind of get it more. And then as you go beyond 10, well, painting gets better, strategies get better. But what was lovely when I went with my eldest to this sort of Warhammer big expo, you know, it's the high grand finals of all the schools in Britain. It was nice seeing all the kids playing. And what was really nice is you got points for winning your game but also you got points for being a good sport. If somebody liked playing you more than anybody else in the tournament, you got extra points. So it wasn't about going, ha ha ha, in your face, ah, crushed ya, or anything like that. It was about being nice. And actually the, the very first time we went to Nottingham for one of these tournaments, the team that actually won, they actually came second in terms of battles won, but because they were so lovely and polite to everybody, they'd actually won all the points for, for good sportsmanship. However, I am going to say, while they're still trying to attract women into it, and there's no reason, there's no, it makes no difference about sort of skill or anything like that. So, you know, ladies, please join. Um, I, there are some amazing female painters that I follow on Twitter, and I, you know, I love their work. But interestingly, out of the 70 or so children that were there playing this game in Nottingham, 
only two were girls. So, yeah, you know, if this sounds interesting, it, it's inclusive for everybody. And and what I liked about my local store is they won't allow sort of swearing. They won't allow sort of aggression or anything like that. Anybody who is transphobic, homophobic, misogynistic, anti-Semitic, whatever, you know, pick something that is un unacceptable. They will absolutely stamp out and they will say, you know, you get you get one shot to be the, a good person. After that, we don't want you here. And indeed, Games Workshop themselves has released occasionally this stuff saying, you know, this is an inclusive hobby for everybody. That we have no gatekeepers, so don't listen to any people online saying, you know, oh, you're too young or you're too old or anything else. That's just not acceptable. So look, I hope that's sort of given you a taste of it. I talked more about the evolution of the company this time round, but if this sounds good, I can talk a bit about Warhammer 40,000 because they do use a lot of historical references. We could talk a little bit about Stalinism or fascism or the Crusades or the Inquisition. Basically, all the worst things that humans have done are in Warhammer 40,000. But it also leads to an interesting philosophical question there, too. So anyway, if you like this one, let me know. Post stuff. You can reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at Gem Daduccio on Twitter. Love to hear your opinions on this one. Actually, I've got some. I've got a little plug, and then I will come back to Twitter in a moment. So there is something worth listening to after this. But as I keep saying, please, please do share the love. Share this one out. Uh, perhaps share it on your Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever. Or if you don't, if you don't want to do that, then just you know click on and give us a review. Or as I keep saying, just tell one other friend. If you went, oh, this was a really interesting episode, then yeah, just get them to click and subscribe to it as well. And whatever podcasting format you're listening to. Now back to Twitter and me. So what I do is every time I paint something from Warhammer, and I try and paint at least something once a week, I'll actually post it on. Twitter, so you can see what I'm, I'm painting at the moment. You can give me your opinion. Uh, if you say it's garbage, well, uh, off you go. You do better. But, you know, most people say nice, pleasant things. And indeed, I actually totted up everything that I painted in 2020, you know, through the pandemic. Now, I would never normally paint this much, but it came to 396 figures. Or some, sometimes I painted uh, scenery, things like trees and ruined buildings that, of course, add to the flavor of the tabletop. So yeah, 396 things, which is a ridiculous amount of stuff to paint. But then again, I was very bored and I was locked down for at least four of those months. If, if that sounds fine, then come and say, say hi on Twitter. Otherwise, as you know, another podcast coming out soon. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.